so we are uh, just about in the middle of our discussion of the principles of hermeneutics. We're going to do number six tonight. The first one was, anybody remember? Priority of the original languages. You know, the original documents were inspired, so if you want to know what they mean, you've got to get back to the original. That's the second one. Accommodation of revelation. God revealed things in a way we could understand. Progressive revelation. A little bit at a time. Historic propriety. We have to look at things in the historical context to figure out what they were thinking so we know what the passage is talking about. Ignorance. Yeah, we all have that uh, proclivity. And that brings us up to number six, which is the difference between interpretation and application. The reason we're doing this inter uh, interpretation versus application is that people don't always interpret before they apply. And we saw that before when we looked at some of the other methods of interpretation that people use, like the uh, devotional method or the so-called literal method or the allegorical method. They, they focus only on the words, and they can make it mean whatever they want. So they apply it to whatever they want to apply it to without really knowing what the verse means or the passage means. Exactly. So they either skip the interpretation part and just make up an application as they're reading, or they come to the text with an application in mind and make the text fit that application. That seems to be more prevalent than, than the other. Yeah. Their minds are already made up. Yeah. Unfortunately. Defined by context, they don't always mean the same thing. We do it all the time. Yeah, we do. Sometimes we do it out of ignorance, then, too. Yeah. Um, I, I think of uh, Matthew, what is it, Matthew 18, 19. Uh, if two of you agree on earth is touching mm -hmm. anything, they shall ask. Uh, uh, it should be done for them, and my father is not. That, that has a narrow application, but as a new Christian, I. I interpreted that quite differently, mm -hmm. and incorrectly. Yeah, it's not unusual. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need to start with some background. There are five key elements here, and they they fit in a sequence. <coughs> okay, uh, this just gives you some definition of terms and how they relate. So you can see how interpretation and application really. So these five terms, revelation, inspiration, interpretation, illumination, and application. And they go in that order. So revelation basically is the word that means to uncover. We get our word apocalypse from that. The book of Revelation is called the apocalypse because it is the uncovering. Basically, God revealed information about himself and his plan. What we know about God and what he's planning to do is not intuitive. We would never guess it. He had to reveal it. 
So that's where we start. We start with truth that has been revealed. It doesn't come from us, it comes from God. Inspiration um, is the word theopneutos, which means God breathed or was exhaled by God. God superintended the recording of his revelation so that it was accurate. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you're familiar with. All scriptures inspired by God, etc., etc. Inspiration applies to the words, not the writers. The, the Bible writers were not inspired. We use the term inspiration in, in that way. We talk about an artist who comes up with a really great piece of art, whatever it might be. We think, wow, he was really inspired when he did that. But that's not what inspired means in Scripture. In Scripture, inspired means that the words that the writers recorded were God's actual words. So he superintended the writing. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says that uh, the writers were moved along by the Holy Spirit. They wrote as the Holy Spirit moved them along. So revelation is the fact that we have the information. Inspiration relates to the recording of that information. And then interpretation, which is what this whole series is about. Interpretation, the word basically means uh, to explain, to clarify. And when we looked at this at the beginning of our study a couple of ages ago, uh, we noticed Nehemiah chapter 8, where Ezra was up there reading the law in Hebrew, and there were other, you know, priests walking around the congregation explaining what it meant. That's interpretation. So the steps uh, in the hermeneutical process lead one to an understanding of the meaning of the text. That's what interpretation is all about, getting to the meaning. <coughs> then we have illumination. Uh, there's a Hebrew word there, uh, nahiru, which comes from the word for light. It means uh, illumination or insight. And the equivalent Greek term, I think, would be eklenko, um, as they have it there, which means to convict or to convince. In John 16, Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It means to bring them to the point of realization and understanding. So it's has to do with illumination. Like a, a clarity. Right. So the Holy Spirit opens one's mind to the meaning of the text through the hermeneutical process. I put that in parentheses because that's usually the way it works. As you are applying these principles of hermeneutics to a text to find out what it means, the Holy Spirit is working. And pretty soon the light goes on. Oh, now I get it. But you got to go through the process. Sometimes you can get, you know, the light bulb, you have one of those light bulb moments. As you're just reading scripture, you're not really going through the hermeneutical process. You're just reading and you get to a verse that you may have read many times before and all of a sudden something new hits you. That could be the Holy Spirit turning the light on. It could also be your subconscious mind trying to be helpful. You always have to be careful with those spontaneous light bulb moments. They might be good, they might be a distraction. So 
if you have one of those light bulb moments, then, then you've got to go back and do the hermeneutical process to be sure that's an accurate understanding. After you understand the text, then comes the last step, which is application. And the word application here is a, a Greek word there, uh, epitithemi, which basically means to place upon or to add to. It's the word that's used when Jesus renames Simon Peter. He added that name to Simon. It's the same word here to apply. You can't do the application until you've gone through the rest of the process. You have to know what you're going to apply. And we'll talk more about that as, as we go through this point. Any questions about that much so far? Yeah. Well, pick a passage of the Bible. Okay. Romans 8 9. Okay. We're not going to look at it. Yeah. Well, the whatever it says there, okay, you can apply this to any text. That's why I said pick a text. It doesn't really matter which one. We have that text, first of all, because God revealed that truth. And it's written down because God inspired the writing of that. So those words in that text are God's words. And he made sure that they were recorded accurately. Then you go through the interpreter process, applying all of these things that we've been talking about to that text. So we did this last week with, with Isaiah was the last week or the week before, Isaiah 7.14, looking at it in the context okay, to come up with a, a meaning for the, the verse. That's application. And then as we're doing that, the light goes on and you think, oh, I see how that works. <laughs> now, I get the point now. You know, that prophecy in, in Isaiah 7.14, we see as a, a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, but that wasn't in Isaiah's mind or the mind of the Jews at the time. So we have to understand what it meant to them at that time. That's basically illumination. We understand, oh, that's what it must have meant to them. And then finally, we can make an application. Once we know what the passage means, we can say now, how does that apply to what I'm going through right now? It's the same with any text you choose. The parables are something that are very easy to apply wrongly. When the Lord Jesus gave that parable, he had one thought in mind that he was trying to get across. Mm -hmm. We can look at this and say, well, this might mean this or this might mean that. It's easy to take a parable and interpret it wrong right. instead of just applying it. That's true. And that's why you go through the hermeneutical process. You got to get it in context. What was he? He had a point to the story, and what what did he mean? You know. And we need to we need to apply the point that he was trying to make, because the 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 parable is just an illustration. And we're going to talk about this idea a little more uh, as we go on here, but you've got to uh, apply the point of the text. You can't come up with a, a brand new idea. You know, maybe you're reading something and it reminds you of something and you think, oh, that's a good idea. 
it's not necessarily the point of the text. It may be a good idea, but you can't build a lesson or a sermon on it and say that's what this passage is talking about, because it's not. You know, it, it just popped into your head. So context is everything. So definitions for these terms, especially interpretation and application. Interpretation is basically what a passage means in itself. This is the result of objective investigation. Remember, we are studying the literal, grammatical, historical approach to interpreting scripture, which is the only one that works because all the others add meaning from the outside. This is the only one that draws the meaning out of the text. So when you look at the text objectively, who said it, who was reading it, when did they say it, why did they say it, what the, what's the overall point, you know, you get all of that together gives you an objective meaning for the text. Application basically is what a passage means to us. And this is what we do with what we understand. So interpretation basically says, this is what the passage means. Application means, this is what I'm going to do about it. And then the focus. It's the meaning that has to be applied, not the words. We talked about this already. Interpretation gives you the meaning. Application shows what difference it should make in your life. But it has to be the meaning that makes the difference, not the words. And there are several passages like this uh, that are taken out of context and misapplied. So to illustrate this, um, let's go ahead and look at Second Chronicles chapter 7. You have heard this many, many times, I'm sure. What's the context of Second Chronicles chapter 7? Anybody remember? Dedication of the temple. Remember, David wanted to build a temple for God. He saw that ratty old tabernacle out in the backyard and said, it's a shame that I live in this nice palace and God has to live out in that moldy old tent. And so he decided to build a temple. He, he was an architect. <laughs> he designed the whole thing. And God says, well, I appreciate that, but you're not going to build it because you've got too much blood on your hands. We will uh, we'll let Solomon, your son, build it. He's a man of peace. What does the name Solomon mean? Shalom. It's peace. Okay. So uh, Solomon built the temple. And when he finished the temple, they dedicated the temple. And that's basically what Second Chronicles 6 and 7 is all about. But let's start with chapter 7, verse 14. This is the verse that's often taken out of context and misapplied. It says, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Most of the time when you hear that or see that quoted, they put an if in front of it. If my people. But you see the if isn't there. The if is back at the beginning of chapter of verse thirteen. Yeah. This so, is one of the verses that they chose for the National Day of Prayer a couple of years ago. Wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So notice 
verse 13 says, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, etc. So the if goes back to verse 13. So who's doing the speaking here? God is, okay. And it is in response to Solomon's prayer. So you often hear this applied to America. People say, well, you know, America's in trouble. We're, we're in a huge decline culturally. And so if, if we want God to heal America, then the church has to get straightened up, you know. And as it says here, repent, you know, turn from their wicked ways, etc. So let's go back to, uh, just to get some context for this. Again, we're practicing the process of hermeneutics just to show you how this works, all right? Uh, so verse 11 uh, says this, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. So this is still Old Covenant. This is a place people are going to come to offer their sin offerings and all of that stuff because the tabernacle was now out of the picture. Now it's the temple, Solomon's temple. And then he gets on to verses 13 and 14, which we've already read. Verse 13 is about judgment. If I shut up the heavens, uh, if I command the locusts, devour the land, or send pestilence, etc. Uh, verse 15, now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. Forever, we need to understand, as long as the temple lasts. So my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And verses 17 on through 22, he talks about Solomon. You know, if you behave yourself and do what I tell you to, then I will bless you and all that stuff. But if you mess up, then you're out of here. And, of course, we know he kind of messed up, <laughs> got distracted, and so... He says there, God says there in, in uh, verse 12, I have heard your prayer. So let's go back to chapter 6. In chapter 6, Solomon has finished the temple. He's made all of those sacrifices of dedication. And then he's praying to God about the temple and basically asking God to treat this place as a place that he meets with his people. Verse 24 because this gets to the specifics that we just read in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 13, you know, if I do this, and if I do this, and if I do this, that's an answer to Solomon's prayer in chapter 6. Verse 24, this will sound familiar, says, and if thy people, Solomon's praying, and if thy people are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against thee, 
and return to thee and confess thy name and pray and make supplication before thee in this house, then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, thy people Israel, and bring them back to this or to the land which thou hast given to them and to their fathers. That's the land of Israel, the promised land. Verse 26, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee and they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when thou dost afflict them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the, the sin of thy servants and thy people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk. And send rain on thy land, notice it's God's land, which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. Verse 28, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, uh, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer of supplication is made by any man or by all thy people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain, and spreading his hands toward this house, posture of prayer, standing with open hands. You have nothing to offer God. All you can do is receive. Verse 30, he's praying to God, Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou alone dost know the hearts of the sons of men that they may fear thee to walk in thy ways as long as they live in the land which thou hast given to our fathers. So that's Solomon's prayer, and then God answers that prayer in verses 12 through uh, 16 uh, in chapter 7. So God's answer to that prayer includes that verse 14, if my people are called by my name, which is applied to the church in America. How can people? Well, yeah, that's the, the application. But, you know, they think, well, America was founded as a Christian nation, and it was. One scholar said that the founding of America was basically a church relocation program because <laughs> it wasn't working in Europe. So they came over here and started over. And, you know, this is a Christian land. Therefore, we can straighten out the problems we're in if we just do what this verse says. The problem is the, the Christians in America are not Israel. This passage is addressed to Israel. And if, if the church in America were to follow this, we'd have to go to Solomon's temple and make the appropriate sacrifices <laughs> to cover our sins. Well, an application, though, could be made for that here is the mind of God. That God says, I will forgive under the circumstances if you meet the qualifications. Mm -hmm. And it, it just it reveals the heart of God. It doesn't apply to us, it reveals the heart of God. Exactly. It says in at least two places in the New Testament that the things that were written beforehand, Old Testament, were written for our benefit. We can learn from that. It wasn't written to us, so we can't take the specifics there and apply it to our situation, but we can say, okay, what can I learn from this? So but he said that those called by his name would inherit the land? Those called by his name 
in this context would be Israel, and he's talking about the promised land, the land of Israel that he gave them. To be called by his name basically means they identify with him. He called them as his people back in early chapters of Deuteronomy. So the whole context here is about Israel. This goes back to Deuteronomy 29 when, when Moses is reviewing the law. He says, God is going to give you this land. Remember, they're just about to enter the land in Deuteronomy. And so Moses is reminding them, when you get there, this is the way you have to live. So he says there, as long as you, just as, Sol, as God says to Solomon here, as long as you mind your P's and Q's, <laughs> you'll be fine. I'll make sure that you are safe and secure and healthy and all of that stuff in the land. But if you start to abuse the land or if you, if you start doing things I tell you not to do and don't do what I tell you to do, then you're out of there. People apply these words. Take them out of context. They don't stop and think about what the passage means. They think, oh, that sounds good. And so they apply it when it doesn't really apply. So interpretation, you, have, you get to the meaning, and it's the meaning that has to be applied, not the words. Many verses, passages are treated this way. Jeremiah 29, 11. Just thinking that yeah. <laughs> that is probably the most popular out-of-context passage yeah. by Christians today. Yeah. Sure. You guys know that passage? Yeah. Jeremiah 11? Uh, 29, um, what, what is it, 11? 11 is the specific verse, yeah. but... So, someone read that. Someone read that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in the context, in the context, Jeremiah is talking to the Jews. He says, when these 70 years of captivity are over... You know, God's going to restore you because all along he's had good plans for you. You went into captivity because you blew it, and this is your punishment. But he's going to restore you because he has good plans for you. Again, it refers to Israel in that context. doesn't refer to us. Wasn't it said Israel was being taken into captivity? Well, Jeremiah's writing just before, yeah, the captivity. Yeah. Right. But he said, you know, God tells him, go over there, settle down, buy a house, raise a family, <laughs> get a job. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be there. <laughs> and it's an interesting thing. People apply that verse. I have know the plans that I have for you, plans to you know benefit you and stuff like that. But they never apply the rest of the chapter which is a curse. You know, they conveniently stop. But because God told them, go over there. That's your punishment. You know, man up and take your punishment. And if anybody doesn't go over there, but stays in Israel, they're going to die. <laughs> they don't, he doesn't have good plans for them. So, you know, if people want to apply verse 11 to us today, they've got to apply the rest of it, too. It's all one. It's all in the same context. Yeah, because it's only, a, it's only even a remnant of that group that ends up coming back to Israel and Jerusalem. Right. Um, so it's only a subset of that. Now, by principle, can we say that God is a loving God and that God does have um, something good for believers? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's in the eternal state. That's looking forward to the eternal state. 
So I've met Christians who have said that that's their life verse. They've gotten a lot of comfort out of it. And how dare you rob me of my life verse? Yeah. And, and what I say to them is that um, is that you know there's plenty of verses you can go to um, that that is faithful to the context. You don't need to take a verse out of context in order to find comfort. There's a lot of there's a lot of verses all over the New Testament. You know, like when 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 Peter when you look at the context of First Peter that uh, you know narrow is is persecuting and, and executing Christians and. And Peter is writing to them, saying, "You know, for a little time, for a little while, you've been distressed by trials, but but this is, you know, you rejoice because the, you know, the outcome of this is going to be a faith that's even more precious than, than gold, though refined by fire." So that, there's so many places you can go to to find comfort in God's promises for the future. But essentially, going to that verse and the comparison that I think of, it's like um, finding an old letter that uh, your father wrote to your mother as a love letter. And then saying, oh, this is reflective of my father's love for me. Well, okay, your father does love you, but that's not what that letter is, right? right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's attributes of God that are there that certainly you can grab as a principle and say, yeah, God loves us too. But in context, you've got to understand that he's not addressing, in that context, he's not addressing everyone who believes in God. He's addressing a specific group of people in a specific time, in a specific context, you know, with, with a specific outcome that, that they're going to go through. Um, so that's that's the problem with taking that. And that's the Israels? That's the Israelites, yeah. Yeah, and Jeremiah, to the point, Jeremiah is the last prophet in, uh, in Judah. So Israel was split up into two kingdoms, the north and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already been taken away by Assyria. Jeremiah was the last prophet in Judah. Um, so realize that he's the last prophet as Israel is losing the promised land. You know, they've lost the blessings of basically the Abrahamic covenant because of their disobedience to the Mosaic covenant. And so the result of them leaving is because of their continued disobedience against God. But God is reassuring them, go there, um, you know, settle down, um, you know, desire good for that country, and after a period of time, I'm going to bring you back. And he does, and it's, but it's a remnant. It's, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's not all of them. It's only a, a small percentage of them that end up coming back. Did they, did they get killed, or did they just... Decide to stay and settle. So some of them just ended up staying and, and settling there. Some of them ended up coming back. And and if you read through the entire Old Testament, I mean, really the Book of Malachi, um, the Book of Malachi shows you what their heart was when they came back. And when they came back, nothing has really changed. Um, so the Old Testament really ends on a somber note that God's own people have not been obeying God's word, even after that exile, even after all of that punishment. And so it intentionally leaves you yearning for that Messiah to come, to, to restore all things. Right. So you got to apply the meaning, not the words. Yeah. So in other words, we always quote Psalm 23, and that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that's the from David talking to God. doesn't mean that I find that the Lord is my shepherd. Well, the Psalms are unique, and the Psalms are a little bit different, because David is usually talking about his humanity, all the human suffering he's going through, enemies and stuff like that, things that are common to our experience. And so he ends up saying he's always depending on God in those tough situations. That we can apply to ourselves. Yeah. So it's the, the, the principle that he's dealing with in the Psalms is the same principle we're dealing with. Yeah. And, and, and the Psalms were, were written as, um, as a method of praise for the rest of God's people. 
So, no, so that he's writing a psalm, it's intended for us to, to all share in that. Yeah. yeah. Can you, um, and by the way, Jeremiah 29, and I agree, I always thought you misinterpreted it too, but as you read it, can you apply it in the way that say, Lord, as you had plans for Israel, and as you answered their call, can you not have it? I know you have plans for me, can you help me? Kind of a well, I yeah, I think the 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 idea is good, but I would rather go to Romans eight. God causes all things to work together for good. Yeah. We're under the new covenant, not the old covenant. So if we want to get life verses, <laughs> applications of specific passages to our lives, we need to go to new covenant passages. Now, if, if you're sitting with someone and they're looking at that passage. You can explain this this applies to Israel, but we know God's goodness for us as well. And here's an example, and you can go to Romans 8 yeah. 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 Isn't that a very good portion of the Bible that Jesus is saying? He loved me to or something like that. Didn't have to cause him following or something. Well, yeah, it, yeah, it's about discipleship. You know, if you're gonna follow Christ, you're gonna have it's to hinting at the fact so that it's gonna be rough. Oh yeah. It's not going to be easy. Really no, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. It's No. Yeah, and the same thing in, in John 14. He tells them, you know, you're going to be harassed <laughs> because of me. And he says, he says, I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you won't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it doesn't mean that because Jesus said that to the 11 disciples, that that necessarily applies to us. Well, that's true, too. I, now, Jesus didn't say the servant is greater than his Lord, so uh, if I, uh, I, I'm treated badly, you can expect to be treated badly also. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's a general principle that he states. Yeah, his, his comment to the 12, the 11, uh, at that time, um, I think did apply specifically to, to them. The apostles, because read Paul's, you know, First Corinthians, no, Second Corinthians, chapter 12, 10, chapter 10, all of the hassles that he went through as an apostle, you know, and if you go back to Acts chapter 9, his conversion, you know, God tells Ananias to go talk to Paul, and Ananias says, you got to be kidding. So, he says, tell him everything he's going to suffer. <laughs> so, the, the original apostles suffered a lot more, I think, than the people in the church did. But Paul always reminded the people in the church, if you suffer the same thing, then count yourself blessed, because this goes along with the territory. Yeah, and I think, um, though, in John 14 through 16, there's, there's uh, I think you can draw an implication that things won't get better until he returns. Right. And so even though he's directly addressing the disciples, uh, we understand if things aren't going to get better until he returns, then really we can expect these kinds of difficulties to be there for all the believers until his uh, return. Um, so you can draw that implication. Um, 
think that's that's fair. And that's the challenge. So we look at these verses, we try to figure out, okay, what did it mean in its context? And and then you gotta look at it, okay, how much of this would, would apply to me? And, and and that requires some thought. You gotta you gotta think through that that passage. Of course, we in this country do not suffer long days really um, the way that uh, anywhere near the amount that uh, the apostles or even people in uh, Muslim countries suffer. Well, and, and I think the result of that um, is that we have a very shallow faith. Yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. um, when you go to countries where there is persecution, the faith is amazing. It is amazing. Um, I mean, I when I was in, sorry, I'm kind of robbing the time here, but uh, when I was in China, um, I was in China and uh, at an underground church preaching through Psalm 110. And uh, and with translation, it took me like an hour and a half to get through it. It was long. The pastor told me afterwards that that was the longest sermon they ever listened to. <laughs> yeah. uh, but what, you know, and I had to cut corners. So I was cutting corners to try to make time. And um, at, at the end, I had a bunch of people from the church coming to talk to me and asking me questions. And, and let me tell you something. Every single question they asked had to do, to do with some little corner that I cut. They were they were tracking every single little detail that was being preached, and they knew exactly when when I skipped uh, some some explanation, some word, some some detail from from that psalm, and, and that's you know that's an amazing amount of attention for that amount of time. Uh, but that that goes to show you when you go to a place where you're actually in danger for a true faith in Christ, um, it, it produces a, a much more pure faith. And then I would say that if we were to undergo that kind of persecution that some of these countries um, go through, I think we would see a lot of people leaving the faith. I mean, that's part of the challenge in the book of Hebrews. If you go to the book of Hebrews, you know that the Jews are the Jews who have professed Jesus Christ, they're, they're starting to discover which ones really have faith and which one doesn't, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty much what they're going through. Um, and, and I think that's what would happen in the U.S. Where, as persecution starts to increase. Um, you start to find out who really are Okay, we've got a couple minutes here. So to wrap this up, personal application has to follow objective interpretation. You have to apply the meaning, which means you've got to look at the text objectively. You can't apply the words. You can't do a superficial reading and say, oh, this is what it means. So I've put that final statement there. One cannot answer the question, what does this passage mean to me, until he answers the question, what does this passage mean? You, yeah, you got to apply the passage. And I put down there as a reference, and this is on your uh, list of references that I gave out at the beginning of the series, a book by uh, Richard Schultz called Out of Context. He deals with verses like Second Chronicles 7 and Jeremiah 29 and a bunch of other ones as well. And it's really an excellent book. Anybody who wants to study the Word should read this book at least once a year. Jeremiah? No, this book by Out of Context oh, by Schultz. Okay. Yeah. Because he tells you how it's misused, he tells you who misused it, and it's really, really an excellent book. It keeps you focused, keeps you centered. All right, well, got 30 seconds. Any other observations or comments about any of that? Okay, so for next week, we'll get into the seventh principle, which is the awareness of the Bible version priorities. If you're going to study scripture, you want to get a Bible that's going to help you be objective in your study. Okay.
Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll go over that. But there are all there. There is a variety of versions of the Bible, and they all have their strengths and their weaknesses. And knowing what is available out there will help you choose a Bible that meets your needs. You may end up with several. One you use for Bible study, one you use for devotion, you know, one you use for something else. And some translations are stronger in certain books than others. So there's no one translation that's superior across the board. Yeah. I, I use NASB, but the more that I go through Ephesians, the more I like the way NASB translates Ephesians compared to the NASB. Mm. Uh, so I think you can vary from book to book as well. All right, so we're out of time. So let's uh, close in prayer.